Well, if you would, please open your Bibles to Isaiah 25. I've chosen a somewhat unconventional text for Christmas Eve morning, but I hope you will see that it is appropriate. Advent, as we've been saying over the last number of weeks, is a time of waiting. We wait for Christmas Day to celebrate Christ's first coming, but we also anticipate His second coming. And so this day, um, Christmas Eve, December 24th, we will celebrate Christ's first coming in the evening service, uh, the candlelight service. Jordan Green will preach from John 1. But my text this morning is an anticipation of Christ's second coming from Isaiah 25. As you think about waiting for Christmas morning during the season of Advent, I hope you see that it's not like some waiting. It's not like waiting in the lobby at the dentist office to have a root canal. Much of the time of waiting for Christmas Day is full of feasting and celebration. Just look back over the last few weeks in your life. Some of you have been to numerous Christmas parties. Or if you have a lot of kids, you've seen them go to numerous Christmas parties in their classes. Think of, this is what I think of, think of all of the cookies you have eaten over the last few weeks. They just keep coming in. Dr. Cowan dropped off two more plates just the other day. Think of all of the presents that you have purchased. Hopefully, in joyful anticipation of the way that those gifts will bless those who receive them. Many of you have already had lavish feasts with your family um, uh, before this day. Some of you will do that yet today and others tomorrow. Some of you will have multiple feasts with your family. The time of waiting for Christmas is a time of celebration. Sure, the high point of it all is Christmas Day, but even the days leading up to it are a celebration. The whole season is a feast. It's no wonder kids love it. But let me ask you adults, do you love this time of year? For many, you think, you know, it's really all a bit superfluous. It's, it's a time when greed and gluttony, when the things of this world creep in and Christ has been crowded out. I felt that way, that cynical feeling about all of the things that we do around this time of year. But as I studied this passage this week, I came to this thought that maybe that type of cynicism is a bit wrongheaded. Maybe it's actually good to pull out all of the stops during this time of year, to spend money, to eat food, to turn on lights, to wear festive sweaters, as so many of you have on today. Maybe it's worth it. Sure, we should avoid gluttony. We should avoid greed. We should not give in to consumerism. 
But if you think about what Christ accomplished at his first coming, it is worth the celebration. I mean, think of it. God, the Son of God, took on flesh. He, and he had to do that so that he could live the life that we have failed to live and ultimately to die on the cross to pay the price for our sins. And he was raised from the third day, declaring that his life and his death, they were an acceptable offering to God. He, in other words, at his first coming, he has secured our salvation for us. If we trust in Christ, we have forgiveness of sins. We are justified in his sight. And even more than that, we have eternal life. The Spirit of God dwells in us. And all of that gives us hope in the anticipation of an even greater day when he returns. Isaiah 25 speaks to all of those things. So when we think of what Christmas celebrates, is it right that we have feasts during this time? Yes, I think it's right as we anticipate the great feast that is to come. Maybe all of the hustle and the bustle are worth it because they remind us that what we're waiting for is worth it. The celebration, small as it may be now, anticipates an unending celebration of joy and gladness. There are many things that are difficult for those who follow Jesus. But what we'll learn today is taking up the cross is worth it because it will give way one day to a crown of glory. The sacrifices that we have to take now are worth it because they will give way to the most lavished eternal feast that you can ever imagine. It is fitting that we would set apart time to feast as we anticipate the great feast. Hopefully you'll see that as we look at Isaiah 25. So with that in mind, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Notice in the first part of the chapter and in the last, it's all about nations, peoples being brought down. But at the center stands a tall mountain where there is a great feast. Beginning in verse 1. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's place is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. But on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples 
a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in its place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So chapter 25 is my main text, but I need to spend a little bit of time on chapter 24 if we're going to understand what is happening in chapter 25. There's a contrast that's being drawn out in the two chapters. Chapter 24 is speaking of judgment on all of the earth. That's picked up in 25 as well, but we see the judgment very clearly in chapter 24. And we know that this judgment will happen at the end of time because of the language that's used. Look specifically at chapter 24, verses 21 to 23. The Lord will punish the hosts of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. So the spiritual beings in the heavenly places spoken of in Ephesians chapter 6, they will be judged, but the people on the earth will also be judged. Verse 22, the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. This is end times language, cosmic judgment that is coming. And why will all of this happen? It's because the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. Who is the Lord of hosts spoken of here? Well, you may be reminded of Isaiah 6, a very familiar passage, where Isaiah sees a vision of the Lord of hosts around whom the angels cry day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. All of the earth is filled with his glory. The thing that you may not be familiar with is that in John 12, John speaks very clearly that the one Isaiah saw in all of his glory was Jesus Christ himself. The Lord of hosts was reigning in heaven during Isaiah's day. The Lord of hosts is reigning in the heavens 
even now. But one day he will return from heaven and he will reign on the earth and over all of the earth. He will bring judgment on some and salvation to others. Chapter 25 describes that great day of salvation. Chapter 24, the day of judgment. I want you to notice the imagery in chapter 24 so we can see the pop of the imagery in chapter 25. 24.6, the earth is devoured on that day. All of its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. The inhabitants of the earth are scorched. But there are a few that are left, we are told. It's interesting to see the metaphor Isaiah uses to describe this judgment day. Look at verse 4. The earth will mourn. But not only that, verse 7 says, The wine mourns, the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. What, What the picture is, is the party's over. There's no more singing. There's no more joy. There's no more instruments. There's no more songs. There's no more wine. The party is over, and it's over forever. Judgment Day is described in terms of mourning. It's described in terms of a funeral. This stands in contrast to chapter 25, where there will be a really big party for all who trust in the Lord, a party that will never be over, a forever feast. All of the parties you're going to now, they all come to an end, and they all to some degree disappoint, don't they? But this party, this feast, it will be forever, and it won't disappoint. It is a feast that makes all of the difficulties in this our pilgrimage worth the wait. Remember in verse 6 of 24, we see that a few will be spared from the coming judgment. And in verse 14, I think it's speaking of these few, that they will lift up their voices and sing for joy. They sing songs of praises as they make their way to the city of God. They sing praises. As they walk along the way, see in verses 1 to 5, they see cities, the city of man, lying in shambles. This is the song that they sing as they come. Chapter 25 comes in three parts. The first and the third speak of the city of man that is brought low. In the middle, in the second part, it speaks of the feast on the high mountains. So I'm going to combine the first and third parts into one point, and then I'll close with the point in the middle. Let's begin with the first part of the song and what it teaches us. It teaches us to praise the Lord for judgment and for salvation. The whole chapter begins with praise. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things. Plans formed of old, faithful and sure. In other words, you've done what you said you would do. 
Then he goes on to speak of what the Lord has done, which, as I've indicated, is really speaking prophetically of what the Lord will do when Christ returns. Broadly speaking, there are two things in these verses that the Lord does. First, he brings down the proud. And that is a reason to praise God. That the enemies of God and the enemies of his people will one day be dealt with. We don't have to deal with them. The Lord will do so. Notice the imagery in verses 1 to 5 and even in verses 10 to 12 are imagery of a fortified city. Look at verse 2. You have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. Foreigner's palace is no more. It will never be rebuilt. So imagine massive cities with high fortifications all brought down into ruins. The same thing in verse 12. The high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, cast to the ground, to the dust. You can't get any lower. The highest of human achievements brought all the way to the ground. To make this concrete, this imagery of the city of man that is against God and against his people, Isaiah draws our attention to Moab as a concrete example. Back in Isaiah 16, when Moab was given the chance, pride prevented them from seeking the Lord. They sought security in their own strength. They built walls and cities to save them. They trusted in horses and chariots instead of the Lord. And their pride, Moab's pride, and the pride of all who resist the Lord persist to the end. Look at verse 10. Moab shall be trampled down. But even then, as verse 11 says, Moab, to the very end, when they see the coming judgment of God, even then, they try to rely on their own strength to stretch out their hands and swim away from the coming judgment. But we are told that the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands. It will take the coming judgment of God for the people who are proud. Only then will they come to glorify and to fear the Lord, as verse 3 teaches us. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess The question is, will we bow the knee now and confess now that Jesus is Lord instead of waiting until his coming judgment when it will be too late? Friends, all who trust in their own strength, they will be brought low. They will be cast to the ground, to the dust. We may not trust in fortified cities today, although I do think we put a lot of trust and the strength of our military in this, this country. But individually, we trust in our own talents and in our technologies. We trust in the skill of our hands. We trust in our financial security. 
We trust even in our own good works. Isaiah 25 is here to teach us that none of these things will save us. All who trust in them will face God's eternal judgment. So one thing that will happen when the Lord returns is He will bring judgment. How we respond to Him today determines what our destiny will be on that day. The only people who will be saved from the coming judgment of Christ are those who trust in Christ now, who came to save His people from their sins and who will come again. And we see those people described in verse 4. So where the Lord will bring down the proud, the Lord will also protect those who see their need for Him. The proud trust in their fortified cities. The Lord will be a stronghold or a shelter to those who trust in Him. The imagery continues. Look at verse 4. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. Jesus said something similar, didn't He? Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. Those who are poor in spirit are those, thank God for the gifts and talents that they've given him, but realize how desperate they are for God's intervention in their life. They are poor and they are needy. They need God to save them. They need the Lord to be their shelter, not only from judgment day, but also from those who persecute the people of God and who are against the Lord. Those who trust in the Lord, this passage is teaching us, you will be vindicated one day. You may be ridiculed today. I mean, people may think that you're foolish to trust in Christ. They may think you're weird. They may attack you with words or even more than that. We're aware of stuff going on with some of our missions partners right now. That It's real that people will oppose us for our faith. But one day, the people of God will be vindicated. Have you placed your trust in the Lord? To do so, you need to first acknowledge your need. You need to acknowledge that In your sin, you deserve God's coming judgment. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. Nothing. Only God can save you. And the only way to be saved from your sins is to trust in Jesus Christ. He died for our sins. He was raised from the dead. He alone can protect us from the coming judgment. But the Lord does more than to protect us from judgment. The gospel is not simply the good news that we can escape eternal conscious punishment in hell. It is that. But it's more than that. The good news is also the announcement that the Lord is preparing for us a feast for all of His people. And this is covered in the middle and central section of Isaiah 25. And it teaches us this. We need to rejoice because the Lord's salvation is a feast 
worth waiting for. Rejoice. Even now, knowing that the feast that awaits us is worth the wait. Chapter 25, as I mentioned earlier, you need to have this picture of pilgrims making their way to the city of God, making their way to the eternal Zion. They have sung of the Lord bringing down the proud. Now they sing of a mountain. We're told in Isaiah 2, it will be the highest of mountains. To feel the joy of that coming day, we have to see it in contrast with the morning of judgment. Judgment will be a day when the party is over. The singing will stop. The wine runs out. The day of the Lord's final salvation stands in stark contrast to this. Look at verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. He's stacking imagery on top of imagery so that you see just how amazing this is. The Lord not only died to pay for our sins himself, took our sins upon himself, the Lord Jesus himself will lay out a lavish feast for us. Those who will face God's judgment, it will be a funeral day for them. Those who await the Lord's coming salvation, it will be a wedding feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb that Revelation 19 anticipates. But before the wedding feast can happen, there's something else that must happen. Remember, funeral garments and a wedding. The funeral garments have to be taken off so that we are dressed appropriately for the wedding feast that will follow. Verse 7 says, And he will remove, or he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. That's a face covering. It's the veil of mourning that is spread over all of the nations. And why is there a veil of mourning that is spread over all of the nations? Because of death. Because of fear of death. But on that day, we are told, the Lord will swallow up death forever. Do you catch the way the metaphor is working? Before we sit down and eat, the Lord must swallow something up. The Lord must swallow up death so that there's no reason to mourn anymore. And how does he do this? It is through the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54, speaks and uses this exact verse that we've just read to speak of the resurrection of those who believe in Jesus, our future resurrection. This is what Paul says. At the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable 
and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Amen? We will put on wedding feast clothes. We will take off funeral clothes. That's what we have to look forward to at the second coming of Christ. And get this. We can look forward to that day not as fools who have wishful thinking. We can look forward to that day, to our resurrection, to death being swallowed up in great confidence. Why? Because at Christ's first advent, at His first coming, He accomplished something amazing. It's a guarantee. His resurrection guarantees our coming resurrection. There is an inseparable link, friends. A confidence-inducing link between His first advent and His second. Between His resurrection and our resurrection. If we are in Christ, we will be resurrected from the dead. And when this happens, He will wipe away all tears from all faces. I want you to notice the language there. I say regularly, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more tears. But I missed the nuance of this verse. The Lord Jesus, He will set the table for us, but not only that, He will personally wipe away all of the tears from your face. So that there will be no more crying. But not only that, he will also take away the reproach of his people. As we said earlier, the saints will be vindicated at his return. And so now, with death dealt with, with the tears and the mourning and the reproach taken away, we will be ready for a forever feast. A feast that will be filled with great joy and gladness. That is our confidence as Christians. That day is secure for us. It's worth the wait. It's worth the wait. So let me ask in closing a couple of questions. First, who is this feast for? I've already alluded to that. I've already said that, but I want to reiterate it. And then second, how are we to live now in view of his return? So to answer the first question, who's the feast for? It's for all peoples, for all who trust in him. The feast is not just for Israel. If you would think of the original readers of Isaiah, how astounding this message would be that all of the promise of a coming salvation was not just For exiled Israel, it was a promise for all peoples, for all nations of the earth. But with that said, it's not as if everybody will be saved. It's not as if this is speaking of universal salvation. Verse 9 tells us, the seat at the table is for those who have waited for the Lord to save them. 
Who are the people of God? It's those who wait on God, who wait for his salvation. In other words, it's for people who trust in the Lord. That's what Isaiah 7 to 39 is driving at. One of the the major themes of all of those chapters is a call to trust the Lord. Don't trust the surrounding nations. That's verses 13 to 23. They're a sinking ship. Ahaz, he didn't trust the Lord. He trusted in Assyria to save him. Ironically, the Lord used Assyria, the one he was trusting in, to come and decimate all of the land of Judah, their greatest cities, up to the gates of Jerusalem. And when Assyria was at the gates of Jerusalem, there was a new king, King Hezekiah in Judah, and he trusted that the Lord would save him from the Assyrians, and the Lord did that. The song of the people who wait for the Lord is summarized in chapter 26, verses 3 to 4. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. The people of God are a group of people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, but a people from every nation who trusts the Lord. That's who is invited to the feast It will last forever. So have you placed your trust in Jesus Christ? That's the most important question you will answer during this season. And if you have, how are you to live as you wait for the Lord's return? That's my second question. Paul tells us in the last verse of 1 Corinthians 15, after speaking of the resurrection of believers, he says this, Therefore, My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It teaches us this. As we wait, we should be steadfast in the Lord's work. You see this theme repeated in all books of the Bible that speak of the Lord's return. I think of Revelation. The book looks to the defeat of the enemies of God, just like Isaiah 25 does. It looks to the wedding supper of the Lamb, just like Isaiah 25 does. It looks to the new heavens and the new earth. But the purpose of all of those visions in Revelation is not so that we can argue about the timetable, of when the Lord returns. That's not the point. The point of the book is to encourage us to endure in the faith, with confidence, in the future, to keep the Lord's work until the end, Revelation 2. The vision of the great feast is meant to encourage us to keep on in the faith. Part of that faithfulness involves telling the nations this good news. Salvation is for all the peoples of the earth, but how will they come to believe unless they hear? They have to hear. The Lord uses us in accomplishing His purposes of saving a people from all of the peoples of the earth. 
So as we do this work and all of the other works the Lord has called us to do, I want to talk finally of how we do that work. We do that work with joy and gladness. There will be unceasing joy and gladness in that last day. As we anticipate that day, it should permeate into today. We shouldn't just do the work because it's our duty. There should be delight in the work that the Lord has called us to do because we have such confidence, such hope in what awaits us. We do it with joy and gladness. We do it, if I can put it this way, as people who are getting ready for a party. I mean, think of, th- think of a party that you're really excited to go to. As you're preparing to go to the party, the party has almost already started. Maybe you're the type of person you put music on while you're, you're getting ready. You're, you're putting on your clothes. You're looking in the mirror. You're, you're thinking, I can't wait to get to that party. The party will be great, but even getting ready for the party is full of joy and gladness. That's the way that our work, as we wait for the final feast, it should be marked by a joyful, glad anticipation of the Lord's coming. I admit it's difficult to follow Jesus between his advents, but friends, it's worth the wait. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain because we know that in the Lord, our labor, it will give way to rest. Remember, the cross will give way to the crown. Sacrifice will give way to feasting. The hope of that day should give us joy and gladness today. So I pray as you celebrate Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, Enjoy your family, enjoy the food, enjoy the presence, but do so with more. Do so with anticipation of an even greater feast day that is coming for the people of God. There's many of you here that you don't look forward to this time of year. I would say you can even go through the hard times that you are facing in these days with joy and and hope because this celebration as imperfect as it is it does still anticipate the great celebration that is to come let us serve the lord with joy and gladness would you pray with me father oh the thought that your son took on flesh to ransom us. That the iniquities of all who believe in Him were laid upon Him and by His stripes we are healed. We give praise to You for that. But then to think that the Lord Jesus Himself will also lay out a spread for us a feast for us. We're not only saved from our sins. We're not only protected from judgment, but we are invited into your family where there will be endless joy and delight. 
What a great God you are. What a generous God you are. I pray that our hearts would be filled with thankfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.